Today's reading is in 1 Corinthians 2, starting at verse 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments, for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is God's word. Uh, my name is Phil, I'm the Associate Minister here, and it's lovely to have you with us this morning as we turn back to 1 Corinthians. We've been had a short series in Joel, and now we're back to 1 Corinthians for the rest of the summer. Let's pray, and then we'll look at it together. Our Father God, we pray that you would form in us our wisdom. We pray that you would give us faith to trust your wisdom. And we pray, Father, that as we look at the cross and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we would have confidence to trust you, that your ways are wise and true, and your way works eternally. Amen. Uh, Back at the uh, beginning of the second century, before most of us were born, the, uh, the Roman philosopher Celsus derided Christianity. It was quite a popular thing to deride Christianity, and uh, this is what he said. Uh, Because Christians admit that ignorant people are worthy of their God, Christians show that they want to convert only foolish, dishonorable, stupid people, and only slaves, women, and little children. Ha, 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 ha. That's Roman wisdom about Christianity. What a foolish religion it is. And in some ways, little has changed since then. I was uh, I had coffee yesterday um, on Friday morning with uh, one of the small group leaders who was off to see a, a very, very intelligent, capable, successful university friend. And he says, this guy, so often he talks to me and just says, your Christianity is just foolish. It, it makes no sense the way you live your life. It means denying yourself all sorts of things. It just makes no sense. It's foolish. Well, so what? Well, actually, it matters because when you look around and you see that the opinion formers of our culture, from the movie makers to the comedians to the politicians to the friends that we respect and know individually, when you look around and see that the overwhelming majority of them, they look at Christianity and think, this is just, it's just silly. It's backwards, it's possibly dangerous, and it's definitely stupid. Well, it makes us wonder, do I really want to put my trust in Jesus? 
Isn't it mad to become a Christian? I mean, if you're, you're working things out, coming along to church and, and looking in to, to work out, do I want to follow this Jesus? You look around when you get out of church and, and you see nobody, nobody significant, nobody important, nobody intelligent, it seems, in our culture is doing that. What, am I mad for considering this? And it shakes our confidence. And those of us who, who would call ourselves Christians, those of us who do say we trust in Jesus, as we make decisions on how to live day by day, uh, um, how we conduct our relationships, how we spend our time and our money, how we treat people we don't really like very much, we read what the Bible says on one hand, but then we look around at culture. And we see that everybody who looks wise and successful in our culture is living their lives and making their decisions in a completely different way a way which doesn't fit with what the Bible says. And so our convictions, they get a little bit shaken, and, uh, and our faith wobbles, and we, we kind of wonder whether, oh, am I an idiot for trying to apply this book to my life? Well, the church in Corinth felt this temptation as strongly as we do. We're back in Corinth for, for the summer, and Corinth was a wealthy, successful it was, a, it was a London-like city in the first century. It was full of powerful people. It was a place you went to make a name for yourself. And the church in Corinth, well, it was full of people who wanted to follow Jesus, but they also wanted to be respected and admired in a culture which was, it was full of wealth and, and opportunity, and, and you could get ahead in Corinth. And, and they wanted both to, to, to trust Jesus and be forgiven, but they also wanted to, to fit into Corinth and to get ahead in the world. And they saw that in Corinth, people made their decisions very differently from the way the Bible encourages you to. And so instead of being shaped by the cross, this is a group of people, a church, which is trusting in Jesus on the one hand, but day to day, in the way they conduct their lives, it's, it's really the world and the attitudes of Corinth that are shaping them. In fact, it's even shaping how they do church. If you like, the message of the cross ought to be the salt that flavors all of our lives so that everything about us, all of the way that we conduct life is, is shaped by the death of Jesus on the cross, our trust in him. But instead in Corinth, the opposite's happened. The salt of the world's attitudes in Corinth is flavoring even how they do church all of their lives. And so if we want to live bold lives as Christians, if we want to be confident to live out our faith, if we want to be able to follow Jesus in a culture which sees it as foolishness, then it's very important actually that we learn the lessons that Paul teaches in this chapter. They're vital for you and for me. Now, just before we get into it, there is one, one little thing just worth stressing. It's easy for us, given our culture, to hear this passage wrongly. At the heart of this passage is a clash, but it's not the clash that we think it is. It's not a clash between, on the one hand, intellectually credible, scientifically grounded, reasoning wisdom, and on the other side, blind, naive Christianity. It's not a, a clash between wise reasoning and foolish faith. It's actually a clash between two different kinds of wisdom. See, wisdom is, wisdom, all wisdom is, is, Understanding the reality of the world so that you can live in the light of it. That's what wisdom is. Understanding the reality of how relationships work, how the physical world operates, so that you can live well. You understand gravity so you don't walk off the edge of a cliff. That's, that's wisdom. 
And the point that Paul is going to make in 1 Corinthians 2 is, look, you can be absolutely brilliant at observing the world, at understanding all its scientific processes, at analyzing human motivations and behavior, but but if you ignore the facts of God's existence and Jesus' resurrection, where your wisdom is worthless, because you're ignoring the most fundamental things about reality. See, Christians are not being called in this passage to live differently because we we reject wisdom. We're being called to live differently because we are to reject worldly wisdom that ignores the reality of Jesus' resurrection and God's existence. And so all of our lives should be shaped, Paul teaches us, by God's wisdom. Okay, let's get into the passage. Uh, just two um, big points, really. True wisdom is revealed in God's Son, and true wisdom is revealed by God's Spirit. Firstly, verses 6 to 10. Now, um, just to, for a little bit of context, Paul has been explaining from chapter 1, verse 18 onwards, that the central message of Christianity about the death of Jesus on the cross will always sound foolish and weak. So if you look back to, to 1, verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness. To those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Of course it sounds foolish. You want eternal life? Put your trust in a man who died 2,000 years ago. That's just foolish. You want to know who the king of the universe is, the one worth following. It's it's that pathetic figure writhing in agony as he breathes out his last, bloodied and battered on a cross, dying the most shameful death the world has known. It's just foolishness. You want to achieve greatness and know eternal joy. Well, follow him and spend your life giving yourself to other people, especially the poor and the lowly. It just makes no sense at all. The message of the cross will always mean a rejection of the wisdom of this world. But that doesn't mean it is foolishness. Christians are not to be Luddites who shun learning, knowledge, reason, and technology. I mean, that should be obvious. When you look around the world and realize pretty much every one of the great universities was founded by Christians. There's always been a love of learning at the heart of Christianity. As we'll see, Christianity is not a rejection of wisdom. It's a rejection of worldly wisdom. Verse 6, chapter 2. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. If it's not the wisdom of the world, what is it, Paul? What, What is this wisdom you claim that Christianity actually has? Well, it's God's eternal wisdom. God's eternal wisdom. And it's revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, that word mystery, that it says it's at the heart of the the wisdom of Christianity in verse 7, it doesn't mean something strange or, or weird. It means something hidden. So here's a mystery. This box to you is a mystery. You have no idea what's in it. It could be a ticket to the World Cup final could be a snake that uh, Scott was offering his son. Uh, You have no idea. You can't work it out. It's a mystery. You need me to open the box, but I'm not going to. Um, That's what the gospel is like, a mystery. You have no idea until it's revealed. 
God's eternal plan of salvation isn't something that was worked out by the great philosophers and and religious leaders of this world. It was revealed. God had to open it to us when his son, the Lord Jesus, was sent to the world to save us. So don't worry too much if the great ones of this age mock, reject, or ignore the gospel. Because the truth is none of them has the answer to death. And as influential as they are, well, verse 6, they're coming to nothing. They're coming to nothing. Now, Paul develops the point in verse 8 to 10. He says, the cross only appears to be utter foolishness because people are ignorant of God's great plan. Verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood it. That's the mystery, the, the message of the gospel. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, And those are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. I mean, think about it. The great political power of the day, that's Rome. The great religious figures of the day, the high priests in Jerusalem, they took a jolly good look at Jesus Christ. And they decided, nah, he's a fraud, kill him. And they sent him to the cross. They completely failed to see. They completely failed to understand that God's plan was revealed in Jesus, that he would take the punishment of death in our place. The problem was Jesus didn't fit with their preconceived ideas that if there is a God, he should behave like this. If there is a God, he should do that and he shouldn't do this. And so they never saw the reality that was in front of them. So look, if you want to know the truth about God, don't expect to find it in agreed statements by the powerful of this world. The G8 are very unlikely to issue a statement on the Trinity. Don't expect the religious leaders who are promoted by BBC or who write articles on BuzzFeed to tell you the truth about the gospel. Don't expect the the must-read summer novel or the biggest blockbusters of the year to proclaim the truth about God. Because the powerful in this world tend not to see it. Because it, it just doesn't fit with our world's ideas of what God should be like. Now, one pretty obvious implication, I guess, of that is that if you follow Jesus, you're unlikely to be seen as very wise by people either. I mean, don't set out to be seen as an idiot. Most of us manage that admirably without trying too hard, um, speaking for myself. But don't be too surprised when you get the knowing smirk. Oh, you you go to church. Okay. Each to their own. The patronizing comments. Now, verse 9 is an adaptation of uh, Isaiah 64, as he says, uh, Isaiah 64, 4, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. Now, the specific thing Isaiah is talking about is the amazing future that God has for his people in paradise. But I think Paul is using that just to make a quite general point, which is God's plans are never something we would have thought of. And so humans who arrogantly assume Look, God's ways ought to make sense to me. We'll never see the richness, the beauty of what God has planned. I mean, think about it. God becoming a man. We would never have thought to do that. The relentless ambition of the human race ever since the Garden of Eden has been to reach up. We pad out our CVs. We talk up our achievements. And so the truth is we find it very hard to understand And very easy to miss a God whose central act is to reach down 
to become less, to be a servant, a human. Jesus dying on the cross. I mean, we wickedly rebel against God as humanity. We filled the world with war, with greed, with rape, and with racism. That's a, we filled God's good world with those things. We treated God as if we don't care about him. We've completely ignored him. And we've treated other humans who are made in the image of God as garbage to be disposed of, as obstacles to be trampled over or used. I mean, how would you respond if someone treated people you loved that way? And God's response is to come and die on a cross to take the punishment we deserve. And then to share his glorious inheritance, the inheritance his son deserves, to share it with us and welcome us as his children. No human mind could conceive of that. We would never dream of behaving the way God does. And so it's very easy for us humans to miss out on what God is doing. See, the picture that Paul gives us in verses 6 to 10 of of God's wisdom is, it's like we humans are living in a deep, dark, long cave. And we've made a massive blazing fire at the back of the cave. And we're very impressed with ourselves because we've created light and warmth and we love the, the fire. And then someone says, hey, look, go the other way, and there's real warmth and real light. And everybody mocks and laughs. Don't be ridiculous. As soon as you step away, you're walking away from the warmth and the light. That's stupid. That's crazy. That's foolish. But when you do finally turn away from the light and the warmth of the fire and step into the darkness, you see something you've never seen before. It's a very faint, faint light. When you were near the fire, you couldn't see it because it was drowned out by the light of the fire. But as you walk into the cold and the dark, the faint light starts to grow and get brighter and stronger. And eventually you emerge from the cave and you walk out into the glorious sunshine of the open air. Now, to turn to follow Jesus is to turn to walk away from the wisdom of this world. And it's to be called foolish. Why would you turn away from the light and the warmth that everybody else is enjoying? But it's not to become a fool. It is to turn away from the wisdom of this world's fires and instead to come to know the glorious wisdom of the sun and to bask in his light. True wisdom is revealed in God's son. It is missed by the world, but it is revealed in God's son. Secondly, true wisdom is revealed by God's Spirit. Okay, so how can we come to know this great wisdom, this gospel, this mystery which is hidden? Well, we need God to reveal it by his Spirit. Verse 10 carries on. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God's. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. Now, there are two basic ideas that run through these verses. Firstly, only God's spirit can reveal God's wisdom, God's thinking to us. And secondly, only God's spirit can enable us to accept, to understand, to believe that. Let's see how he gets there. Um, 
Who's the only person who knows what's going on inside my head right now? Well, me. Or to use the language of verse 11, my spirit. Here, spirit just refers to my inner self. I'm the only person who knows what I'm thinking, which most of the time is a very, very good thing. Nobody knows what's really going on in your head other than you. And as the second half of verse 11 points out, the same is true for God. Who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now then in verse 12, Paul uses spirit in a slightly different way. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. He means spirit as in uh, spirit of the age, the zeitgeist, the thinking of the culture. He's saying, look, the spirit of this age doesn't know God. If we only go by what everybody else in our culture thinks, we'll miss what God thinks. But if you follow Jesus, God sends his Holy Spirit to live in us, to reveal God's truth to us. So that verse 16, we have the mind of Christ. That's why we need this book. That's why we love this book, the Bible. That's why the Revive, the the Commission Church annual thing is called a Bible festival, because we want to know what God thinks. We'll never learn the truth and the wisdom of God by looking in here, in my heart, or in my head, or, or out there in the editorials. We need God's own words. Verse 13, and Paul the apostle says, this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. Paul and the other apostles were eyewitnesses who met the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul, in a vision later on, the others, uh, as Jesus lived on the earth. And they were commissioned by Jesus to teach the truth about Jesus in an authoritative way. So Jesus, Jesus lives his life, dies his death, and comes back to life. And then by his spirit enables the eyewitnesses to write it down so that you and I would know the truth about God. And so the words they spoke are words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities. You see, we cannot just work it out. You can't You can't just imagine that you can sit here and and think your way up to God. We need God to reveal himself to us. And just as importantly, verse 14, we need the Spirit to receive that teaching. Verse 14, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. You see, because the gospel runs counter to the wisdom of the world, it it does seem like foolishness, nonsense to us. Many of us can remember a time when much of what we read in the Bible, to be honest, seemed plain nuts. It just did. I guess there will be a number of us here today who still feel like that. And Paul is clear in verse 14, look, you need God's Spirit to enable you to, to turn away from the thinking of this culture and to receive the truth of God. That means you need to be humble. You need to be humble. Are you humble enough to say, you know what, God, I might need your help to receive your truth. Would you you help me? Pray as you look at the word of God. God, would you help me to understand the truth about you? That's a great challenge for us. Because in the West, ever since the Enlightenment, we've believed we, we can find the truth through reason alone. We don't need revelation Spinoza and and the others, the the great rallying cry of the Enlightenment was enough with revelation. We can just trust in human reason. Now, the human mind's an amazing thing, and it's an extraordinary thing. 
uh, to waste on cat videos on the internet. Uh, but it's an amazing thing when you, actually, when you actually use it. It's incredible. We can look down and work out the atomic structure of the world. We can look up and we can put a man on the moon. It is incredible what we can do with our minds. But there are limits to reason. Christianity doesn't involve a rejection of reason, but it does involve a recognition of the limits of reason. Reason cannot reach up to God. We need God to reveal himself to us. If you like, uh, maybe this will work for some. It's, It's the difference between maths and money. Maths and money. Reason can no more come up with the truth about God than doing maths can make money. Now, being able to count is crucial to handling money, but it doesn't produce money unless you're a creative accountant. But you, counting doesn't make money. It just enables you to understand the money that you've been given. Being able to reason is essential to understand God. He's revealed himself in his word. He wants us to understand him. But you doesn't produce, the, the ability to think doesn't produce the truth about God. It just enables us to understand the truth that he has revealed in his word. To say, look, we no longer need the Bible, now we have reason, is like saying, we no longer need money, we can count. No, no, you need the Bible so that your reason has truth to engage with, just as you need money so that your counting has something to, to act on. So we need God to reveal himself to us, and we need his help to receive that revelation. That's what God has done through Jesus Christ and by his Spirit. Paul finishes uh, this section with a wonderful uh, tone of liberation, really. Verse 15, the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. To receive God's revelation of his wisdom in Jesus sets you free. Sets you free from being judged by human standards. It no longer matters what the fits and the fads and the fashions of this world make of you and your faith. It no longer matters. The only verdict that matters is that of eternal God. What does all that mean for us? Well, two quick things, really, just as we close. Firstly, it is easy to feel intimidated when it seems most of the influential intellectual voices tell you Christianity is nonsense. But Christianity has never seemed weaker and more foolish than when Jesus died on the cross. And yet, three days later, he burst out of the grave to triumphant eternal life. The truth is, we look pretty foolish and weak now. Where is God? Can't see him. Where is this Jesus you believe in? If it's so great, why do so many intelligent people reject it? Most of those who appear wise in the world consider you naive and backward if you follow Jesus. And we look foolish, therefore, as we invest in loving people who can give us nothing back. What a a way to spend your life. As you give in a way which undermines your earthly future financial security. What a foolish thing to do. As you live in a way that means you you might not find the fulfilling relationships that everybody else says you have to have now in this world for a real life. Looks foolish, but in a short while, Jesus will return. And then we will not look foolish at all. 
I quite enjoyed uh, watching the film The Big Short um, a year or two ago. It's, uh, it's one of those based on historical facts, which means there's a license for... Um, but anyway, it's broadly accurate in, in the big things that it, uh, it talks about, which is it follows a, a couple of um, financial whizzes who, in the run-up to the, the financial crash in 07. They took a, sh a short position against the US housing market. In other words, they said, we think the whole thing's going to crash. And everybody thought they were absolutely mad. I mean, the US housing market had been a one-way bet since the 1950s, pretty much. And all the cleverest people said, this is ridiculous. You're, you're crazy. You're just, why would you bet against the US housing market? It's just a solid investment that always, always goes up. Now, the guys who went against it, there were just a few of them who said, no, 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 we, th we think it's wrong. They weren't cleverer than the other people. They didn't actually have better algorithms to, uh, to read the market with. They just looked at the facts and realized this whole thing is built on a lie, a herd mentality. And nobody else will, is, is willing to recognize, because everybody else is going this way and seems to be making lots of money right now. And, uh, and so nobody could dare to think, hang on, this might be wrong. Because I'd miss out now. Everybody's making money now, and that can't be wrong. It must, it must be going right. And these guys said, hang on a second. No one can afford their houses anymore. The whole thing is going to crash. And so they bet against it. And soon enough, everything came crashing down. And all those who were so busy making money now lost a whole heap of money. And those who looked like fools, well, they made an absolute ton of it. But nothing like as much as Jesus' followers will be rewarded by God with in eternity. See, it looks foolish and weak to follow Jesus now. And the Bible's not telling us, oh, it's, uh, if you're clever enough, you can work out what nobody else can work out. It's just saying that the facts are different. The facts are different. The fact of Jesus' resurrection, that changes everything. The fact of God's existence, the fact of Jesus' return, it changes what wisdom looks like. So invest your life for Jesus Christ. Live by his wisdom. That's the wise play, the wise investment strategy. Don't be intimidated by the world's scorn, but do live by Christ's wisdom. Actually, the rest of 1 Corinthians, in one sense, there are a number of themes that run through it, but in one sense, it's basically Paul working out what it looks like to live by God's wisdom. And Paul telling the church, stop living by the world's wisdom in the way that you do church in the way that you run your relationships, in the way you treat people who've wronged you badly. He's unpicking their living by the world's wisdom and saying, look, live in the light of Jesus' return. Live by God's wisdom. And he challenges them. I'm not sure whether, where it will most bite for you over the coming months as we look through 1 Corinthians, whether it's relationships, where, whether that's the area where you find it very hard to turn away from the world's wisdom very hard to remember Jesus will return it's worth living God's way whether it's financial security whether you find it very hard not to have security now like everybody else but to trust the wisdom of eternity whether it's confidence to share the gospel with people who seem so intelligent and so mocking and so secure and it's very hard to to speak about Jesus to people who you know will think you're foolish 
But to be a Christian is to recognize the facts are different. And because the facts are different, well, wisdom looks different. So be careful not to allow yourself to follow the same wisdom, the same mantras everybody else follows. Don't follow the crowd. Don't live your life the same way as people who don't realize Jesus rose from the dead. You don't realize he will return and you don't realize that you will live forever. The one who was crucified has risen and he brings eternal life. The one who is now ignored is the one who will return to judge. So we speak a message of wisdom. But it's not the wisdom of this world or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. It is God's wisdom. A mystery that has been hidden and that God has destined for our glory. Live by his wisdom. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we pray that we would not be uh, too intimidated by uh, the way that so few in our world who are influential and powerful seem to, seem to trust the Lord Jesus Christ and live for him. And so many of those who are powerful and influential mock, deride, ignore the gospel. Help us, we pray, not to be unsettled and shaken by it. But we pray that the fact of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fact of his return, that these things would help us to, to live by your wisdom, to live lives that make sense, not just in this world, but lives that will look sensible from the perspective of eternity and that look wise under the eyes of God, not just the eyes of man. Amen.